Thanks, John. Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm looking forward to learning how to pray better as a result of our study here today of Psalm 8. Uh, before we get into it, though, I, I, uh, I want to take a moment and, and pray about something. This may be breaking news for some of you. Um, if, like me, you maybe don't follow the news that closely on Sunday morning, I uh, got a text about this. But uh, late last night, uh, there was a shooting in Orlando. Um, a uh, Muslim man uh, shot and killed 50-plus people at a gay nightclub in Orlando. Uh, 50 more wounded, at least that's the last I heard. It may even be more by now. Um, the shooter, as far as I know, was shot and killed as well. And um, they say it's the biggest loss of life in a mass shooting in American history. Um, and so it's just heartbreaking. And, um, and I want to take a, a minute and, and pray. And it's especially interesting, I think, for us as Christians, because when you think about the shooter and you think about the victims, both are in kind of groups that it's easy for Christians to dislike. It's easy for Christians to not have much of a heart for or a compassion for. And uh, we do desire for justice to come about and for justice to happen in this world, but we also realize that those are two groups of people that Christ came for. And, uh, and so I want to take a minute and, uh, and pray together about that. All right, let's pray. Father, you know our frame and you know that there are things that are uh, so difficult for us to process or understand or make sense of that we don't even sometimes know how to pray. So we thank you for the spirit who intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And God, we, we pray now that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven into a situation that is horrific and painful and evil. And um, God, we think about all the victims and their families. Uh, we think about the shooter and his family. Uh, we think about... Um, so many Muslims in this country who love the country and desire to do good and are peaceful people who, whose lives get made more difficult by this. We think about all the political controversy and implications and God, it just, it's, it just grieves us. And so, um, Lord, we ask that you would allow us as your people to be a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of light into a world that's increasingly dark. Father, I pray that we would be slow to speak, slow to type, slow to post, and quick to listen. I pray especially that you would allow us to reflect on the brevity of our own life and the shortness of our own days and to turn our attention to you. God, uh, bring your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you will continue to pray uh, for that situation in the coming days. Um, there's a message I did after the Newtown shooting uh, some years back called Where is Jesus When Horrible Evil Strikes? And uh, many of you weren't here in those days. And so if uh, that's a question you wrestle with as you see this or you see other tragedies or maybe if you even just want to share it as a resource to people who are wrestling with that sort of stuff, uh, we've posted it on our Facebook page and social media and stuff like that. It's also, if you just go into our sermon uh, page on our website, it's under the standalone. You'll have to go back into the archives to find it. Um, but hopefully that can serve uh, some of you as you process this. All right. 
Well, we began a series last week called The Psalms, Learning to Pray, and uh, we're asking that God would, over the course of this summer, teach us to pray. And the reason for that, that we said last week, is that Jesus died to give us relationship with God. He didn't just die to give us forgiveness of sins. He didn't just die to usher in his kingdom, though he did that, but he died to bring us into relationship with him. And the main way we experience relationship with anybody is to communicate. And therefore, if we're going to have relationship with God that's vibrant and meaningful and close, we need to be people of prayer. And so, so here's the reality. Jesus died to give us prayer. He died to give us prayer. Prayer is not just a tool to be used to sort of bring about good things in the world, though it does that. It's not just something that we should do as a spiritual duty, though it is, but it's an invitation of God to say, hey, relate to me, come get to know me. And so that's what this series is about. We're just looking at a number of Psalms uh, because the Psalms are really the prayer book of the people of Israel. They're the prayer book that God has given us where we can teach, uh, we can learn how to pray with honesty. We can see a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different situations and be taught how to pray. So each week, we're looking at a different psalm, and uh, that's where we'll head. We said last week that uh, we figured there are probably five kinds of people, at least, that are part of a series like this. Uh, first were those who have no interest in prayer. Uh, we realize some of you, you, this doesn't interest you, it doesn't matter to you, whatever, you're just waiting uh, till lunch. And uh, if that's you, we're thrilled you're here. And, and if you had the honesty to admit that, that is wonderful, and uh, we hope you'll get something out of it anyway. But we just want to know that you want you to know that we're, we know you're here. Um, we also know there are some of you who've never been taught to pray. You don't know anything really about how to pray, and so hopefully this series will help you. We said last week that there are those of you who have weak prayer muscles, right? Just, just kind of out of shape, or maybe you've mastered the pre-dinner prayer, but the rest of your prayer life is kind of weak and, and out of shape. Uh, maybe there's some of you who pray but don't pray. And we kind of compared this to the husband and wife who talk a lot throughout the day, but they don't ever really connect at a deep level, right? They talk a lot about schedules and who's going to pick up the kids and, and a lot of the logistics. And that can be sometimes we pray just when we're on the go and we, we need this and we need that. And we kind of do a lot of quick little prayers, but we don't ever really connect with God. And then there's the last group of you who really know how to pray. You truly pray. You pray in the little moments, you pray in the big moments, your default uh, ref reflex is prayer. And so we're all uh, in different places on this and uh, hoping over the course of this summer to move closer and closer uh, to number five. So that's where we're headed. All right, well, here's a, a question to sort of set this up uh, as we look at the Psalm 8 today is uh, what's the most important thing about you? And uh, there are a few uh, theologians who had differing opinions about this. Uh, A.W. Tozer was one, C.S. Lewis was another, and apparently in order to be an important theologian and author, you had to have initials for your names. Um, so A.W. Tozer, C.S. Lewis, they said very opposite things. And I'm going to ask you, as you look at these quotes, who do you agree with? Who do you think is right? All right, so first, A.W. Tozer, I've actually used this quote before in sermons. It's a good quote. Here's what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, that's his thesis. What comes into our minds when we think about God, that's the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's an interesting point, right? The most important thing is what you think about God. 
Then C.S. Lewis comes and he says this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Hmm. <laughs> Who's right? Right? Tozer says, what you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. Lewis says, ah, hogwash. You know, the most important thing is what God thinks of you. Hmm. How many of you are with Tozer? A few cautious hands. No one real proud of it, but uh, yeah, I think I'm with Tozer. How many of you are with Lewis? You all just like the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> you don't. How many of you just really, ah, I don't know, I'm stuck. I don't know what I think. How many of you will never raise your hand? <laughs> gotcha. You, some of you just raised it. Um, who's right? I don't know. They can't both be right, right? The most important thing can't be two opposite things. I don't know who's right, but Psalm 8 is going to show us that they both have a really great point. Because in Psalm 8, what we're going to see is how we should think about God, and we're going to get to see in this very same psalm how God thinks of us. So I think Psalm 8 will be really instructive for us in thinking about God, him thinking of us, and most of all, teaching us to pray. All right, well, Psalm 8, just to give you some background on this, Psalm 8 is what's classified as a praise psalm uh, written by David. Uh, the, the scholars kind of come up with lots of different categories of psalms. Here's an image, actually, from my Bible software program. I realize you probably can't see the designations there, but uh, this is sort of all the psalms, based, the, the bubble, the bigger the bubble means the longer the psalm is, and they're kind of grouped into these different categories. So uh, Psalm 2 is one of the praise psalms. That's in the top left, the red. You see in blue, there's lots of lament psalms. Uh, there's some royal psalms, that's in the orange, kind of dealing with the kingdom of God and things like that. Uh, yellow in the middle there, those are wisdom psalms. Uh, Thanksgiving psalms in the green, hymn songs in the darker orange, and then trust uh, kind of in the, in the turquoise. Now, as we said last week, the psalms are like country music, right? Like country music, right? You could say, well, this one's about my truck, this one's about going to the river, and this one's about drinking with my buddies, right? Like, but every song's kind of about all of those, right? So, so this is a praise psalm, but there's these other elements mixed in. And it's written by King David. Uh, if you're not familiar with David, he was the youngest of eight brothers. Uh, he was a shepherd as a young boy. He's the same David who killed Goliath. You've heard of the story of David and Goliath, the Killed him with five smooth stones. He was a musical artist. He was a songwriter. Many, many of the psalms uh, are written by David. He played the harp, so he had kind of an artistic side to him, but he was also a warrior and a king. In fact, more blood is shed in the Bible at the hands of King David than almost any other Israelite. And so there's a very complex figure. His psalms are sometimes hard to, how, how do we make sense of this in light of David's whole life and those sorts of things, but, but he writes this psalm. And here's the big idea today, and we're, we're asking this all along the way as we study this book, is we're not just going, what does this psalm teach us in general, but we're saying, what does this psalm teach us about prayer? How does this psalm help us learn to pray? And here's kind of our big idea. Prayer is about building a relationship with the God who is majestic and mindful as proven by Jesus. 
Say that again. Prayer is about building a relationship with the God who is both majestic and mindful as proven by Jesus. What we're gonna do today is just kind of work our way uh, through that sentence, all right? So here's the first part of that. Prayer is about building a relationship with God. Prayer is not primarily about self-discovery. It's not primarily about uh, finding peace, finding clarity of mind, uh, having some sort of connection with a spiritual realm. Uh, prayer is not about access to power. Prayer is about connecting with God. Sometimes people will talk about the power of prayer. Have you ever heard that? Oh, I just, I believe in the power of prayer. I get what people are saying, but I always, you know, that part of me that's sort of the contrarian wants to go, well, I don't. I believe in the power of God through prayer. Yeah, you're a jerk. Yeah, I am. Kind of. <laughs> but but that, that's not it. Prayer by itself isn't powerful. I mean, you, have, you can be a total pagan, you can be kind of a new age person, and you go, I believe in prayer, it gives me peace, it gives me clarity of mind, it helps me start my day better. Well, good for you, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about connecting with God, and we see this in verse 1 of Psalm 8. Look at your Bible, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The language of verse 1 is a very personal kind of, of language. You'll notice there that it says Lord twice. But you, do you notice this? Look at it. The first time it says it, O Lord is in small caps. Do you see that? O Lord, small caps. And then it says our Lord, and that's just sort of regular. Do you see that? Nod your head if you're with me. You got that? Okay. Anytime in the Old Testament, and this happens a ton in the Psalms, when you see Lord, small caps like that, or all caps, it's, it's the, the word for God's name. It's the Hebrew word that no one knows exactly how to pronounce, and even uh, Jews, because of their awe and reverence for God's name, are hesitant to say it, but the best we can come up with is that the name of God there is Yahweh, Yahweh. Or you may have heard it as the great I am, right? It's the name that God reveals himself. When, when he calls Moses and says, hey, Moses, go deliver my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, hey, when I go tell them God sent me, they're going to say, well, what's God's name? And God says, Yahweh, I am who I am. Yahweh, the Lord. So this prayer here is not, oh, man upstairs, oh, God, in a generic way. But, oh, Yahweh, it's personal. Prayer begins as a personal communication, a personal connection, building a personal relationship with Yahweh, with God. And then it says, oh, Yahweh, our Lord. This word is the word Adonai. Maybe you've heard that. The, the, Lord, the Lord our God. He's, he's Adonai. The, the, that word means master. It means king. It means ruler. So, so get this. Just notice how personal the language is. Oh, Yahweh, personal name. Our master. Meaning, we're in relationship, Yahweh. We're serving you. You know us. You know our name. We are your people. You're not just God out there. You are our Lord. Prayer is this personal relationship with God, who is king. Yahweh, who is Adonai. 
there's a, a really good book. In fact, I would tell you, if you're, if you're going to read only one book the rest of this year, read the Bible, okay? If you're going to read two books, read a book called simply Prayer by Tim Keller. It's a fantastic book. Um, I'm in the process of rereading it, and I feel like it's one of these books I'm just going to keep rereading my whole life. I keep talking to people who have read it and are rereading it. Very helpful, especially related to this uh, uh, series. And here's the definition in that book that Tim Keller gives for prayer. Here's what he calls it. He says, prayer is a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. So it's not just talking or meditating or speaking, but it's a personal speaking, it's a communicative speaking on the basis of knowing who God actually is. So the more we get to know God, the better we actually can pray. He continues, the power of our prayers then lies not primarily in our effort and striving or in any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. The more you know God in a personal way, the more powerful the experience of prayer will be. But prayer by itself isn't powerful at all. Prayer is about building a relationship with the God next who is majestic. God is majestic. That's how he's described here in verse 1. Look at it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I looked up that word majestic. What does that really mean? You know, there's kind of images that pop in your head. There was a few words that were kind of associated with this idea of majestic. The first one was mighty, right? If someone is or something is majestic, it's got might, it's got power, it's got strength, right? And notice all the might that you see in this passage. Look at verse one. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? If something is known in all the earth, that's powerful. That is really important. You have set your glory above the heavens. Right? When the Bible talks about the heavens, it's talking about the, the physical solar system and stars and universe. He's saying, God, your glory is above that. That's mighty. That's powerful. And then verse 2, this is one that sometimes can be confusing, but verse 2 really speaks to the, the, the might of the majesty of God. Here's what it says. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You go, gosh, what does that mean? Right? He's talking about the majesty of God above the earth, and now he's talking about stuff babies and kids say? What's he saying? I've always kind of read verse 2 as a sort of way of saying, you know, kids say the darndest things. And sometimes kids, you know, in their purity and their innocence, they know the truth better than adults do. That's kind of a truism, I suppose, but that's not what he's talking about here. What's he talking about here? Well, think about this. God is Yahweh revealed to Israel. Our Lord, the King, revealed to Israel. Who is Israel? Israel is this little itty-bitty teeny nation. And of all the nations of the earth that God is Lord over, right? How majestic is your name in all the earth? Who did God reveal himself to? Little itty-bitty baby Israel. So what King David here is saying is, out of the mouth of babies and infants, out of little bitty Israel, 
You've established strength. God, you're so powerful that you can rule the world by establishing just this little bitty kingdom like us. That's how big, that's how mighty God is. And then it says in verse 5, this speaks of God's might, yet you've made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God crowns humanity with glory and honor. The person doing the crowning is the person who's mighty. Right? There's a famous story of Napoleon, uh, where Napoleon uh, crowned himself. Right? Here's an a artist, a, a painting of it. What Napoleon realized, what typically happened was the emperor, the kings, they were crowned by the pope. The pope would do the crowning. And Napoleon went, well, wait a minute. Whoever, uh, whoever puts the crown on, that's the one with the real power. So what he did was he invited the pope to the ceremony, and then the pope came with the crown, and he said, I'll take that. And he took the crown, and he crowned himself, as if to say, I'm the one that has the real power here, not you. Well, in this verse, verse 5, it says God is the one who crowns us. Well, the one who crowns is the one who's mighty. All of this speaks to the majesty of God. Another word associated with majesty is large big, huge. Notice, it says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, how big are the heavens? How big are, is, is the solar system or the universe? Or, I mean, it's just scientists don't even begin to know where it ends. It's so, so large. And yet God made it. And then it says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... Think about this. God's fingers are the ones, his fingers are the ones that mold this massive solar system. Right, the, the picture that comes in my head is when my daughters come to me, they've got a little necklace or something and it's gotten tangled. And they say, Dad, will you please untangle this? Right? And I don't know why they give it to a big sausage-fingered guy like me. <laughs> give it to your mom. She could probably do this better. Right? But I'm, I'm messing with it and I'm... Right? Look up here. This is how God... Right? God with the, the whole universe is like, hmm. That's how big he is. That's how large he is. We look at it and go, oh my gosh, it's amazing. God's like, hmm, that's pretty little. I think I can get this. Right? That's the imagery, the work of God's fingers. And again, that's not literally saying that God has these really massive fingers. It's, it's a imagery to say, look at how large and majestic God is. Uh, here's a picture. See if you can figure out what this is. Any idea? That's the space shuttle from space. Right, go on YouTube and type in space shuttle launch and then turn the volume way up, right? And it'll shake and off it goes. And I mean, there's just nothing more spectacular. I mean, it's just overwhelming. We look at it and yet from God's perspective, he's going, what is that down there? Is that a space shuttle? Oh, I can't really see it. Oh, oh, that's what that is. Right? That's how large he is. That's how majestic God is. Another word associated with, with majesty is, is beauty. Right? God's not just big and strong. He's also beautiful, wonderful. It, it says uh, in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. Glory is often referring to God's 
importance and God's beauty and the splendor and the light that surrounds God. He says, when I look at the heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, I mean, these are beautiful things. We could spend hours and lifetimes studying them. They're beautiful. All of it points to a God who's majestic, a God who is transcendent. Right? There's the transcendence of God. He's really big. There's the imminence of God. And uh, one of the big lessons for me, last summer at this time, I was on sabbatical, and, and you all were so gracious to support our family, and the elders were gracious to give us a sabbatical for 10 weeks, and um, you know, we went to church here and there, but we weren't in our church community, and one of the biggest lessons, one of the biggest things I saw was that the world is just filled with discussions of imminence. What's here and now and present? What can you taste and touch and smell and feel? What is going on right this second? Very low horizon. And only in the church are our eyes encouraged to be lifted up. To say, no, 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 no. This world isn't just about what's here and now. This is about a God who's majestic, who's transcendent. That's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. If we don't remind each other of who God is, who will? No one will. God is just very easily ignored. We need one another. We need the church. Do your prayers reflect the majesty of God, the transcendence of God? Or are your prayers all about the imminent stuff? And the imminent stuff's really important. We'll see that in a little bit. But, but is part of your prayer life just praising, thanking, adoring God for his majesty? How much of your life is that? Have you, have you considered these things about God? Have you told him, right? When you get to know somebody and you really appreciate them and you're kind of falling in love or you're deep in love, you tell them, I so admire this about you and, and you're so pretty and you're so great and here's all these great characteristics. You're so patient and all, right? All these, you, you praise them because you love them. Do you do that with God? Do you praise God for his power, his largeness, his beauty? Do you think about the ways God's not like you, that God is eternal and you're just this little blip on the dot? Do you think about how God is unchangeable and yet you're changing and moving and molding and one thing today, another thing tomorrow, and yet God's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you think about how you are dependent on God for life and breath and everything, but God is independent and has existed and will exist forever without you? Do you think about that? Do you think about that God is holy, totally separate from sin, totally separate from anything that would be polluting or evil? We have to think about these ways that God is different from us. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a few of you uncomfortable right now. Just got a lot of heads popped up. Wait a minute. Now I'm listening. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We've titled this series, The Psalms, Learning to Pray, which means we're not just going to talk about prayer. We're going to spend a few times along the way in this series praying. You know, not just lecture, but lecture lab. Okay? So here's what I want to do. And you're not going to be asked to say anything out loud. You're not going to be asked to say anything to anyone else, but just to pray by yourself. I'm going to give you about 60 to 90 seconds. Here's what I want you to do. Think of a way that God is majestic. Maybe something we've just talked about. What is something about God that's majestic, that's 
big, that's powerful, that's amazing, that's different from you. And I want you to spend the next 60 or 90 seconds and just praise him. Don't ask him for anything. Just adore him. Tell him how great and mighty he is. All right? I'll close us in just a moment. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You are holy. You are full of splendor. You don't need us, and yet you care for us. There's nothing that surprises you. There's nothing that catches you off guard. There's no time that you're confused. You have all the power and all the goodness to reign and rule, and we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go on, what would, how would your life and your prayers be different if part of your regular prayer life was praising God? How might it change your perspective? How might it get your eyes off of just your situation and onto the God who reigns over it? All right, so prayer is about building a relationship with the God who is majestic but also mindful. God is mindful. Verses three and four really highlight this. Uh, Verse three shows you the majesty again. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, and then here's the mindfulness, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David says, God, this is amazing. When I think about how majestic you are, when I think about there's no one like you, how on earth do you have time to think about me? Right? That's verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? That word mindful just means remember. God, you remember me. You know me. The son of man that you care for him. That word a care, care is the word attend to. Right? We love the image of Jesus as he wraps the towel around his waist and he bows down and he washes his disciples' feet. He serves them. He attends to them. David says, God, The the universe is just this little thing in your fingers, and yet you attend to me. Wow. We've looked in the majesty of what we should think of God. Now we get the idea of what God thinks of us. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David says, listen, God, this is incredible. You have crowned us with honor and glory. What's the honor and glory? It's that we're made in the image of God. Now get this, we're not God. Right? That, that's what it means there when it says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That, the, the Hebrew word for heavenly beings could be translated heavenly beings or God. You've made him a little lower than God. It's the word Elohim. It, it, it could be translated legitimately either way. Well, what... What makes us lower? It's we're not God. We're not angels. We're the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. Dominion, which means God in Genesis 1, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, make the rest of this wild, untamed earth like the Garden of Eden. Use all of these gifts I've given you to, to in a sense, be rulers with me. That's an amazing place of honor. And you got to know, that is a unique thing to the biblical faith. At the time David's writing, he's writing surrounded by all these Mesopotamian cultures where there's no sense that, that man is important, that man is bearing the image of God. The, the story around the, in the culture surrounding David and Israel at this time was that people were not really that important. In fact, what happened was there's all of these gods who aren't that majestic, they have all these flaws and problems, just like we do, but they kind of got tired. They needed some servant slave labor, so they made people. It's not a very high view of man. So David says, no, 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 no. We're crowned with honor and glory from God. That's different than the Mesopotamian story. Well, what's the story of our day? People only came about as a result of accidental collision of atoms. And because we're made in the image of God, we want to assign value to humanity, but we're stuck culturally because it's like, ah, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to reconcile that, that I just innately know that there's value in people with the fact that I believe that we're just a random collision. See, the biblical view, David's view, is that Man is a little lower than the angels, a little lower than God. The, the world's view is that man is a little higher than apes. Which means we get very upset when the ape dies and not the image bearer of God. It's a totally different thing. God's loves us. God has made us in his image. We are on God's mind. God cares, not just in some, like, he's not just this distant, big God. He's involved in the nitty-gritty of our lives. The most beautiful thing I've seen related to that, just, I saw recently from Jim Mullins. Jim is uh, one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe, and uh, Jim, if you, if you got to know Jim, he thinks different than almost anybody I know, and in a really beautiful way. And uh, recently, he, he posted a picture, and, a, and he wrote some stuff with it on Facebook, and I thought it was worth sharing. Here's what Jim says. He says, this is a picture of our loving God serving my lovely wife. 
You may not see him in the picture, but that's because we have blinders that were sold as spectacles by the Enlightenment. Right? The Enlightenment's all about the here and now. Whatever you can see, that's what's real. If you can't see it, it's not real. Jim says, those are blinders. God is providing her with comfort and rest through the hands that created and installed our air conditioner, those who made the blanket and designed the chair. God is providing light through electricians in the work of those at SRP. God is using that light to help Jenny read the pages of a book that's deeply encouraging to her, which she can read because God gave teachers and the gift of languages. God is the author of the experiences of the author, the planter of the trees that make the paper for the pages, the publisher behind the publisher, giving her the book through the hands of those who work at the bookstore and drove the delivery truck. God is protecting her through strong walls and a secure lock. God is sustaining her life through the cup of water at her feet. The water, which was once in someone's toilet, is cleansed by God through his work in plumbing, sanitation, water purification, and good policy making. God fed her tonight through the work of farmers, ranchers, and centuries of culinary experiments that culminated in ravioli. <laughs> God sings to her through the rich music that's being played through the computer, which he created, designed, and assembled through thousands of hands at Apple, Intel, etc. This much-needed rest will be used by God to sustain her and through her to comfort our sweet little girl on the autism spectrum a knucklehead who is trying to be a pastor, and young women whom she mentors. God will speak words of comfort through her vocal cords to people in pain. He will likely use her work in HR to connect people to jobs that will provide for their families and connect the company with employees who will engage in fruitful work. Hundreds of thousands of people have worked millions of hours to deliver the grace that she is experiencing right now as she reads and rests in that chair. Behind all of their hands is the hand of God, unseen by the human eye, but the most present one in this picture. That's beautiful. Don't you want to see the world like that? Don't you want to just go, oh yeah, God's mindful of me, and he's involved in all this stuff, and he's making it go. Well, just as much as our prayers need to praise God for his largeness and his majesty, we also need to pray with thankfulness and gratitude for his mindfulness. So we're going to do another little lab here. I want to give you another minute, and I want you to just think of some way that you see the invisible hand of God at work in your life and give him thanks for it. Okay? Let's pray.
O Lord, our Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him? God, that you would care for us in so many ways through air conditioning and tables and chairs and plumbing and food and restaurants and so many other ways, medicine and so many other things that we experience your grace. God, give us eyes to see your hand at work. Give us eyes to see your hand in our work, how we get to be part of blessing people through the various things that you've given us as vocations to do. God, help us to serve and honor you and thank you so much that you are mindful of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's the last part of our sentence. Prayer is about building a relationship with the God who is majestic and mindful as proven by Jesus. How do we know that God is like this? It's one thing for David to say, God, this is what you're like, but how do we know? How do we know he's right? Is there anything that could show us, yes, God really is like that? Yes, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate one who's majestic and mindful. We saw this a bunch last year as we studied the Gospel of Mark. I just loved going through the Gospel of Mark and seeing the majesty and the mindfulness of Jesus. We saw his majesty at one point early on in the book when he's asleep in a boat and there's this tumultuous storm and even though the boat is filled with all these experienced fishermen, experienced people on the water, they are freaking out because the waves are huge and they think they're going to die. And they wake Jesus up, say, Jesus, are you going to do something? And Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. And these big rocky waves go flat as glass. And they say, who is this guy? He has the power over the wind and the waves. Right? And they said that over and over. They heard him teach. They said, who is this? No one teaches with authority like this. They saw him cast out demons. They said, who is this? How does he have power like this? Right? Over and over and over, you see the majesty of Jesus. But you also see the mindfulness. Again, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, you can go read it. There's a man who has leprosy. Leprosy is this horribly, uh, just just terrible skin disease and it was thought to be very contagious and your, your skin just decayed and, and it was isolating because no one wanted to be around you. They didn't want to get it. Or you've heard of leper colonies and these lepers would have to stay away from people. Well, this one particular leper, he hears about Jesus and he goes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And the guy says, I want you to make me clean. And Jesus doesn't back up and go, because he, listen, he has the power. All he has to do is say the word. He could back up and go, hey, that's pretty ugly, <laughs> but be clean. No, what it says is Jesus looked at him and moved with compassion. He reached out and he touched him and he said, be clean. What the man wanted was to be clean and he needed that and Jesus gave it to him. But what he also needed that Jesus knew he needed, that he didn't even ask for, was a touch because he'd been isolated and he'd been alone and he'd been in a place where everyone was afraid to be near him and Jesus was not just majestic but mindful. The ultimate place that we see this is on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And the author of Hebrews actually picks up on this. The author of Hebrews quotes this very psalm and then says this at the end of it. He says this in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He says Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here's what he's saying. He's saying on the cross, we see the glory of Jesus. You go, that what? It doesn't make any sense. How do we see the glory of Jesus in him dying? We'll read the Gospel of Mark, because when you get to chapter 15, you see the centurion, the Roman soldier, who didn't know anything about the Hebrew Scriptures, and it says when he saw Jesus die the way he did, he said, surely this man must be the Son of God. The majesty of Jesus was seen at the cross. But so is the mindfulness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus tasting death for you and me. It's the ultimate. We pray to a God who's mighty and majestic. We pray to a God who's mindful and close, and we know he is, and we have confidence that he is, even when it feels like our life's falling apart, even when it feels like God is not near, even when it feels like he couldn't care less. We look at Jesus, and we know that if Jesus did that, that he cares, that he's for us. And we can then, as it says in Hebrews, approach his throne with confidence. Let's pray.